This week on the show, we have migrating drives and z-pools between hosts for you. OpenBSD in 2019, a little bit of an overview. Then we have some information about Dragonfly's new Zlib and DHCP CD. Then a cool little batch renaming images and resolution with AUG. A little rant on the X11 ICCCM selection system, some Hammer 2 emergency space mode, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 324, Emergency Space Mode, recorded for the 13th of November 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode. We have some interesting headlines for you as always, but that's not the only thing we have in the show. So uh, stay tuned here. The first headlines we have, though, is from uh, Dan Langell, and he has been migrating drives and the Z-pool from one host to another. And of course, he has been recording all this in his blog. So first thing to mention about this, if you're doing anything slightly complicated, I highly recommend Dan's approach of capturing data about what the system looked like before and documenting all the different commands and so on that you run as you do it in a gist or a blog like this. Because then if you run into some problem and you ask someone like me for help, uh, <laughs> I can see what it looked like before, uh, what you were trying to do and what you actually did and be able to uh, help solve the problem. Uh, and I've helped Dan with a couple of different things and it's been so much easier than helping most other people because of how good uh, a note stand takes on his blog like this. And that helps other people in turn. Yes. Uh, and if I've used it, A, when someone else says, I'm trying to do this, what are the steps? I'm like, well, Dan documented it very well over here, or I got stuck. And it's like, well, so did Dan. Look over here. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for Dan uh, for taking such great notes. So he's trying to move uh, an existing Z-pool from his old R710 to a newer Dell R720 basically a newer generation of hardware. He learned a bunch of random things, including about the screw hole in his drive caddies for microSATA drives. <laughs> They're new. Yeah, if you haven't used those before, that's a new... Why is that hole in there? Yeah. Uh, so the first thing he did was stop his Postgres applications so that all the apps that are going to be writing to his database would shut down, so that shuts down the Freshports apps and stops his Bacula director and all that. Uh, and he shows what that looks like. Then he stopped his monitoring so it wouldn't go crazy uh, and then turned all of his jails off. Then he could export the pool. There was one application still running so he had to use forced export to unmount it anyway. Um, then he could pull the drives out. Uh, so before he did that, he took a snapshot of what zpool status looks like for it. And you can see a mirror of two sets of drives. Mm -hmm. Tank fast. <laughs> nice name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then it shows each of the devices being destroyed, DA3102, as he pulled the drives out. And he's got pictures of the drive caddies. He said, during his drive swap, uh, I had to change from 3.5-inch caddies to 2.5-inch caddies. Uh, he says the ICY dock adapter has served their purpose as well, but um, these were great adapters and I recommend them. However, now I prefer the hot swap trays. Uh, and so he puts the SSDs in these other trays, and then you can see a picture of them all installed in the machine. Yep. Then he powers it up, and then when he runs zpool import, I guess first he tried to export it to make sure it wasn't there. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then he did zpool import the pool, and then when he ran zpool status, the drives just showed up. There they are, yeah. And then and he says there's much to do still, mainly reconfiguring IOCage and get it up and running, but he'll leave that for another post because I'm sure that's something important enough to have its own blog post. Uh, and so moving the pool from one machine to another was actually really simple. Stop using it, export it, move the drives, import it. Uh, and that's why the import and export commands exist on ZFS. Now, if you've ever tried to do this on an old-fashioned hardware RAID, you would know that it might work if the new computer has exactly the same RAID controller. Huh. And maybe if it's the same brand or something, there's a slim chance it'll work. Uh, but it was always kind of dodgy. Whereas ZFS, um, not only is it this easy, you can do it between different operating systems, but ZFS can even handle this across Indianesses. So if you move from AMD64 to Spark64 uh, or something like that, then even though bytes are written to disk flipped around in a different order, um, ZFS can still deal with it, making it one of the only file systems that can do that. You know, UFS can handle big or little Indian, but when you create a file system, you create it for one of those types, and it's readable on that type, not both, whereas ZFS can do both. Yeah, and this is just another wonderful feature of ZFS. You might not need that every day unless you carry your uh, storage with you to work and then from home back uh, to where you live or the other way around. But yeah, it's there when you need it, exactly when you move between systems or to newer systems or some kind of upgrade is uh, imminent. Okay, so uh, we can recommend uh, Dan's uh, details here and uh, his other blogs posts are also interesting and uh, enlightening in certain uh, scenarios that you might run into your own on your own. Okay, the next story is uh, OpenBSD in 2019. Uh, this is a blog post uh, over at uh, is it Blark? Is it, oh no, that's uh, yeah, that's the blog. Okay, um, so that goes like this. I've used OpenBSD on and off since 2.1, more back then than in the last 10 years or so. Though I Thought I'd try it again. What triggered this was me finding a silly bug in GNU CPIO that had existed with a fix me comment since at least 1994. Ooh. I checked OpenBSD to see if it had a related bug, but no, it was just fine. I don't quite remember why I stopped using uh, OpenBSD for servers, but I do remember file system corruption and unexpected power disconnections, uh, even with sub software soft dependencies turned on, which I've never really seen on Linux. That and a few other things just worked, uh, quote-unquote. Then with Linux, which matters more when I installed more random things than what I'm doing now. I've become a lot uh, more of a minimalist, probably due to less spare time. Life is better when you don't run things like PHP. <laughs> Not that OpenBSD doesn't support PHP, just an example. Or your own email server with various anti-spam tooling and other things. So this is all experience from running OpenBSD on a server. On my next laptop, I intend to try running OpenBSD on the desktop, and we'll see if that more ad hoc environment works well. And we had previous episodes where people reported that it's actually a nice desktop. Um, so, for example, new radio works, uh, lack of other uh, OS VM support may be a problem. So how to run OpenBSD in 2019? The easiest way to run servers nowadays is to just rent VMs on a public cloud. 
Unfortunately, most clouds don't support OpenBSD. Vulture does, and they're pretty good. They have an IPv6-only VM, uh, US locations only, that are only $2.5 a month, or, yeah, $3.50 per month with IPv4. They also, unlike some other cloud vendors, give access to the actual console, which is very helpful. And there, uh, the author here installed OpenBSD 6.5, the newest at the time, and tried it out. So, he has a listing of good and bad things. Uh, they're quite long, but I guess we can cover a couple of them. The first one is, of course, the good security mindset is the first listing, of course. Uh, should go without saying, but it's a perfectly un, uh, uh, it's a perfectly usable Unix system that places security first. They may not be the first, like took them years to reinvent um, uh, write, uh, X or execute behind Linux, but they were the first to turn on the feature by default, and you can trust them to continue to do so. For example, who else bothers to link a unique kernel per system? Uh, ports and packages end up in user local, and anything outside that either you put there or it's the base system. Uh, sure, it means user local may be a bit of a mess, but outside of it isn't. Yeah, separating out what's the OS and then the customizations the user made by installing applications is so valuable. It's just, I don't understand how people that use Linux live without it. Yeah. They just don't know any better. Everything there is in Etsy and they're just, yeah, well, it's always been that way. <laughs> well, it's, it's less the Etsy bits of it. It's more that just like you end up with stuff all over the place and it's like, how am I supposed to know what's, part of the OS and what's what I did to it. <laughs> okay, so that's one up for the BSDs. Uh, it's clear what base system you're running, kernel and everything is plainly 6.6 or whatever, well, plus any syspatch fixes. Yep, that's new in OpenBSD. Uh, upgrading system to OpenBSD 6.6 was easy. I had my fears, but it was about as easy as installing. Yep, that's also part of uh, sysupgrade. Uh, the init system has gotten start-stop scripts in rc.d. He also lists uh, more things, uh, like most things just worked. My Go code worked fine. Well, except for an annoying bug in Ghost's Unix and syscall libraries, but they, uh, which is not a great sign of quality, but yeah, well, so far so good. Not OpenBSD's fault. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, should be in a little bit of a gray area, so here. Uh, modern enough Clang to support C17, the new standard, or the 17th standard at least. GCC version is stuck in the Stone Age because of licensing, but Clang is a worthy replacement now. Development should be good here. And some fixes to MPLS code. Uh, made sure that he. Oh, that's referring back to the uh, CPIO problem. So when he checked OpenBSD CPIO code, he found it of very high quality with APIs designed such that it's hard to use them incorrectly or to leak resources. And the last good thing to list here is I generally find the OpenBSD man pages to be of higher quality than GNU ones. Also nice to have man section 9 kernel internals installed by default. Yes, the man pages are there and they are even there when you're off the internet or some other network. Uh, the bad things listed here, it's less smooth to use, it lacks many convenience options and tools, some examples. Upgrading has a bunch of manual cleanup steps. Uh, uh, he did an edit after that. You can install package sysclean, which will do that for you. Uh, but if you have to install and run it yourself, as opposed to being part of the upgrade. Then uh, he can reliably crash it by using too much RAM. Completely freezes it, even the console, and not answering pings. I don't know if this is OpenBSD's fault or a result of being it in a virtual machine or something on Vulture's side, adding some more swapped help, but that just delays the problem. Oh, okay. That seems serious. 
then on their Walter system, there was no default package repo path, so he had to choose a mirror himself and set package path variable. And since it's on an IPv6 only VM, I had to check a few before finding one that had IPv6 support. Uh, unclear if this was OpenBSD or Vulture's misconfiguration, because apparently it's supposed to just work by having uh, etc slash install URL point to a mirror, but on Vulture it's empty. Now maybe report that back to them. Maybe they have uh, figured that out or can solve it. Mm-hmm. Find requires a path argument. I don't see why I can't default to dot like on Linux. Wait, FreeBSD can do that. I don't know. I've always put the dot. I've never tried to run find with no path. Well, it's probably a different... Like, I've never thought to try it, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people can check that um, live when they're listening to this. Um, DU doesn't take an dash M switch. Uh, workaround is block size equals a million. Uh, DU CS star, which is not as friendly. Huh. I didn't know that their DO didn't do units. Hu- human size or human, yeah. I, I think it does do dash H for human. It just doesn't do one for megabytes specifically. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Then humanize will do gigabytes, megabytes, kilobytes, yeah. Whatever it happens to be, yeah. Yeah, that's his next point, which brings him to if the correct uh, if the correction to SI units was lacking in Linux, it's completely absent in OpenBSD. I'm guessing they're chosen not to. Yeah, that could be it. Uh, then OpenBSD's tar can't read etc as pwd.db due to security features, which is great and all, but prevents backing up etc and being able to check existing code for success of everything else. Oh, ex- exit codes, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the password database. You either back that up or you don't. Well, Root should be able to back it up, though. Uh, apparently, it's a problem of tar that they skipped that. Uh, well, okay. TCP MD5 seems to be implemented as system-wide settings. It's understandable, but uh, not liked. More uh, on a future, on a, on a separate blog post or a link here. And after upgrading to OpenBSD 6.6, random shell scripts started failing. Turns out, slash bin slash sh couldn't handle large hist sizes that I had set for bash, and it just aborts the shell if set too high, instead of making do with less history. Probably that's an overflow prevention. Uh, that's what I think it is. Uh, well, apparently OpenBSD's fixed this already. But... Oh, right. Yes, they list that. There's a, a link to that, and still needs to be improved a bit further, but they pointed it out. While the man pages are good, the source code is not very well documented. I agree that good code doesn't need what does it do, but it does need why. Specifically, what I found missing were what is an environment in KSH? What is its purpose? And why is KSH using its own allocator? Okay, that's very developer-centric, but yeah. Uh, some other things um, that are listed here, but nothing that I find too cumbersome. It's just yeah, a different way of setting it up, but nothing that will completely stop you in your tracks. So the verdict at the end, ouch, that's a long list of bad stuff. Still, I like it. I continue to run it and will make sure my stuff continues working on OpenBSD, lists some uh, of his work. And maybe in a year I have a review of OpenBSD on a laptop. Yes, that would be good. So then we can link to that one. And maybe there is some follow-ups for the things listed there in the bad section and they might be solved by then. All right, time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have new Zlib and new DHCP CD in Dragonfly BSD. Yeah, so Zlib was updated from 1.2.8 to 1.2.11. Uh, with, what's that, about 
1,625 lines added and 989 deleted across 22 files. So it's completely rewritten? Uh, well, no, they updated from 128 to 1211. Ah, mm -hmm. so it's new and just updated. New version of Zlib for gzip and so on. Okay. Uh, and they imported um, DHCP CD, which is a DHCP client, uh, version 8.1.1, which fixes a potential crash when learning uh, the interface addresses for IPv6 and fix fallout from version 1.8.0 uh, in the checksum calculation. Okay. Uh, which is a relatively minor change. 54 lines added, 29 lines removed. Okay, good. Yeah, but definitely worth having. Yep, just basically important maintenance going on in Dragonfly. Yeah, keep those updates coming. If you have interesting stories about Dragonfly, uh, we could use those, of course. Send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll have a bit more at Dragonfly coverage. Uh, if you have an interesting use case or running it on your own machines, that would be an interesting for other people considering it. Uh, the next thing is for the people who say, yeah, you can do so many things on your console, but you cannot do image stuff. Uh, this one is battery naming images, including image resolution with awk. Yes. Uh, so Victoria over at victoria.dev said, the most recent item on my geeky things I did that made me feel pretty awesome list is an hour's adventure culminating in this bit of awk. So they use the file command on all their images the file command can look at a file and tell you what type it is. And for a lot of those types, give you some metadata about it. So when you run file on a JPEG, it can tell you the resolution and some other stuff. Uh, so there's a bit of awk code. And basically, uh, to begin, it sets the variable A to zero. Then it prints a substring of the image up to uh, everything but the last five characters of the image. Oh, isn't $1 the first parameter? Um, that you pass, yeah, yeah. So the first line that comes out of file, mm -hmm. but they're stripping off the, they're shortening the length by five. And when they do that, they then increment the image number by one. So basically, they keep the first five characters of the image name, which will be img underscore. Then they add the variable a, which is a number starting at zero and will be incremented every time they go through an image. Uh, then an underscore, and then the substring of the eighth uh, token out of the file command, which in this case will be the resolution uh, for the length of that. So that will rename the files from img underscore the date underscore some, I think that's the time underscore random number, or the seconds or whatever, uh, and renames it to image underscore uh, the number for, you know, it's, this is the seventh image you took or whatever, uh, and includes the resolution, like uh, 324 by 3780 uh, .jpg instead of just the date of the picture was taken. So it means you get your numbers, your images numbered sequentially, so they'll sort nicely, and with the resolution as part of the file name instead of the date. Ah, yes, yeah. yeah and then they feed that into a while loop, reading two variables, the name and the resolution, and then they uh, rename the file, replacing the file name with img underscore the, uh, the resolution. Yeah, all in one. Mm -hmm. And so it loops through all of these images and does its work. There's a slight display glitch with the website where when you try to scroll over, it widens the page, and then when you try to go to the outside, it shrinks it again and it makes it hard to read. But anyway, a nice little awk loop. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of an uh, an exercise for my students when we 
cover the arc uh, arc in uh, yep. in a couple of weeks. Mm, <laughs> that's a good example. <laughs> and you can see it shows the output of file and then how they're breaking that up into the different tokens and then how they're avoiding duplicate file names by making sure they use that sequential number so that no two files will ever have the same number. And then in the end, they piped it all through lolcat so that it would have a rainbow color. <laughs> yep, for a little eye candy. And yeah, perfectly fine example of arc use. And you can see in a little bit of scripting, in a little bit of shell, you can do many things you would normally do by hand. Go to the next image, rename it, change the resolution. It kind of gets boring if you have a thousand pictures from the last holiday. Yeah, uh, the number of these little shell loops that rename a bunch of files or whatever that I've written over the years, uh, it's just indispensable. Like There are some jobs where probably I'd still be sitting there doing it manually today, 10 years later, if I had just the script to do it all. <laughs> yep. And it's nice that you can pass uh, variables from shell to arc or uh, vice versa using uh, your pipes. Yeah, and they even have good tips like uh, if you're going to script something like this, have it either echo the commands or do something like rename-n for noop um, so that when you first run it, have it just tell you what it was going to do rather than do it in case you made a mistake. Also, pro tip, ZFS, take a snapshot before you do it. <laughs> so if it's gone sideways, you just undo it, tweak the script, and run it again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then she knows uh, replacing the, the dash N for no op with dash V for verbose so that as it does it, it will actually print it out. Yeah. And once you're sure that your script is working, you can uh, just remove that and just let it do its magic thing. Very nice. So, thank you for the luck. Uh, next up, we have interesting things from uh, the X11 ICCCM selection system, or why I hate that in that particular rant here on that uh, page we found. Uh, CallWithCurrentContinuation.org is the website, and the rant is basically about the ICCCM selection system uh, for X11. So, Rants are typically a bit, eh, well, should we post this? But we found this interesting enough to cover it here. So um, uh, where does it start? This is comments. Ah, yeah. uh, D00D, that document is devil spawn. I've recently spent my nights in pain implementing the selection mechanisms. Why, oh, why, oh, why? Why me? Why did I choose to do this? And what sick, evil, twisted mind wrote this damn spec? I don't know uh, why I'm working with it. I just wanted to make a useful program. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Nobody knows until they try it. And once you start, you're unable to stop. You can't stop. If you stop it, then you haven't completed it to the spec. You can't fail on this. It's just a few pages of text. How can that be so hard? So what if they use atoms for everything? So what if there's no explicit correlation between the target type of the selection notification event and the type of the property it indicates? So what if the distinction is ambiguous? So what if the document is uh, uh, littered with such atrocities? It's not the spec's fault. The spec is authoritative. It's obviously your, the implementer's fault, for misunderstanding it. If you didn't understand it, you wouldn't be here complaining about it, would you? Yeah, so it's definitely uh, something really, really uh, bad about how it's written and how people sh are kind of left to interpret what it means and then box creep up or inconsistencies or incompatibilities. 
Uh, it continues with the rant. Um, it's all about understanding, obviously. Once you come to understand how the atoms all fit together and exactly what the sequence of events for an incremental transfer is, and once you come to appreciate how atoms are so uh, guilelessly, delicately cast and communicated, it's beautiful. It really is. I'm like so glad I spent my last few evenings bashing my head against this damn document because now I can see clearly and... It all fits into place, and you know what? It's damn well better because you just know... Oh, there's no pause in this whole ten sentence. Uh, because you just know that if one atom is out of place or you mistake the requester's property window with your property's requester's window or you forget to delete an empty property at the right time, then, well, you're screwed and the whole thing is going to come tumbling down and who's going to look like a fool, huh? That's the first sentence stop here at the question mark. Um, okay, so the malicious the malicious bastards who designed ICCCM? No, you, you idiot fool coder for misunderstanding such a seemingly benign malign document. It all makes perfect sense and whoever heard of synchronous error handling anyway? Oh, wow, there's really some, <laughs> some hard stuff in there. Uh, <laughs> It's it's definitely having some some issues with uh, how it's written, how people are left to interpret some of the things that are almost obvious, but they aren't only for the people who wrote the spec. Um, definitely give it a read, and maybe you understand why some of the X11 uh, specialties sometimes are a bit buggy or don't work as expected by the spec. Okay, whew. After this uh, sort of rant, we uh, do some other sort of hammering because Hammer 2 got emergency space mode. That sounds like a Star Trek term. Yeah, well, it's not. <laughs> like, really, we need to switch to <laughs> emergency space mode. Activate it. Uh, no, it's a serious thing. As anyone who's been running Hammer 1 or Hammer 2 has noticed, snapshots and copy on write and infinite history can eat a lot of your disk space, even if the actual file volume isn't changing that much. So now there's emergency mode, for Hammer 2, where disk operations can happen even if there isn't space for the normal history writing activity. Um, it's dangerous in that the normal protections against data loss if the power is cut go away, and snapshots created while in this mode uh, can be mangled, so you definitely don't want to leave it on, but it can help you get out of the situation where you've run up against the wall and have no space left. I wonder if they might choose to adopt something a little more like ZFS does of having some slop space. Uh, I think it's one thirty-second of your pool uh, is reserved so that there will always be some free space to do things like delete stuff. Turns out emergency mode is required. And it's interesting to see how copy and write as a concept for file systems is still implemented in different ways. If you compare ZFS with Hammer, just for the copy and write stuff, they have different ways of you know, dealing with this. Mm -hmm. I mean, ZFS with the 80% full thing might get a bit uh, slower. Well, that, that's just the allocator uh, having to switch strategies, though. Yeah. That's unrelated. Sure. Um, yeah, so that's Hammer's way. But basically, similar to how, you know how in UFS, if you're root, you can go over 100% full. Yeah. People always got confused when you're at like 102% full. Yeah, switching from time to space. Uh, yeah, well, basically, those two things are what ZFS is doing. The 80% rule in ZFS is about uh, you don't want to go too full because then you will switch from um, allocate as fast as possible to allocate uh, the best fit, which means a lot more searching. Uh, and 
means that when you get to that 100%, you're relying on that bit of slop space like you had in UFS. Um, well, in UFS, it was to keep your you know, syslog from crashing uh, when you ran out of space or from stopping logging. Uh, and instead, in ZFS, it's about giving you enough free space to be able to delete things, which in itself seems like a weird concept. <laughs> but yeah, they thought about it and uh, they have something for it now. It is time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have news from Bastille BSD. Uh, their community has started work on over 100 automation templates. Oh, wow. So over their website, uh, this is a tweet they have. If you find out uh, about it on the Docker Hub, we've got a template for that. Yep. So github.com slash Bastille BSD templates. Uh, this is an easy place to start contributing if you're uh, new and want to get involved a bit. There is a couple of things that you can contribute there. So if people wonder what's Bastille BSD again, Bastille BSD is a, a set of containers or templates for the rest of us. They describe themselves this way. So they have uh, templates for setting up a Jenkins master or a causal core that Ellen and I am, uh, am using or setting up Bacula 9 or whatever you might need. A chat server, Rocket Chat, for example, Drupal, uh, pretty much a uh, hundred recipes that you can use. And this provides you with something that people have put together already and you can just deploy that and uh, don't spend too much time configuring and setting it up all on your own. Then we have uh, another Dragonfly info bit, uh, Pam Perturbed. Yes, so um, they've uh Basically, Dragonfly has gone through and removed a bunch of the PAM modules like PAM SSH, PAM TAC Plus, and PAM Radius uh, and switched instead to the ports versions because uh, those are more frequently updated and makes more sense than having them in the base system. They note that the PPP client still supports Radius without PAM. Uh, but this way, uh, you can use a modern version of PAM SSH instead of having an old crafty one in the base system. Very nice, cool. Uh, then we thought uh, you should have a new T-shirt with cool OpenBSD uh, release pictures on it, and that's available now. Yes, so if you remember in the previous episode, uh, we had mentioned about supporting OpenBSD art and so on. Uh, so this is a Teespring store with a bunch of T-shirts. Specifically, uh, they say, we believe art helps explain and define what OpenBSD is. Uh, they managed the store is mentioned by uh, Job Schneiders. Uh, and Natasha Allegri, and they specifically mentioned all profits from this store are used to pay the artists who create art for OpenBSD. If you want to support the OpenBSD project itself, you should donate to the OpenBSD Foundation. These t-shirts are to support the artists who make art about OpenBSD. Yes, support your artists because they also need to live, and that way they can create future artwork like that. So definitely good cause. Yes, OpenBSD is always had uh, really interesting artwork. And people will envy you for that t-shirt and will ask you, where did you get that one? And then there will be more t-shirts being sold. Excellent. Uh, then we have the Fasto Cloud, which is the open source media service, is now available on FreeBSD. This is a Reddit post on the FreeBSD uh, list or channel. Uh, we successfully built Fasto Cloud media service on FreeBSD. Uh, the sources are on GitHub, uh, Fasto. GT slash Fasto Cloud. So this is basically an IPTV slash video cloud admin panel for a server. Uh, it's cross-platform, works on Linux, Mac, FreeBSD, etc. Uh, includes CPU and GPU encoding and decoding for the videos. Stream to Z6 can work with close 
uh, with CCTV cameras, um, does adaptive HLS streams, can handle load balancing and temporary URLs, a uh, bunch of other stuff. And they have some examples of what it looks like. Are you, uh, are you using that as well? Are you familiar with that? Me? No. On my home ZFS server, we have uh, Plex installed, and that's what I use. I don't know if this is meant to be somewhat analogous to it or completely different. Could be. They have a bunch of pictures of the stuff. Yeah, so it looks like it's more about IPTV-related stuff. Ah, mm -hmm. if you want to watch what people <laughs> do on your uh, surveillance cameras. Yep. Okay, yep, check it out, and thanks for porting that. Uh, then we have Unix, a history and a memoir from, uh, or by Brian Kerningham, now available. This is uh, from Princeton. We mentioned that uh, fr last episode. Uh, but these are more uh, the books that uh, Brian wrote. Yep. So basically, Unix, a history and a memoir, uh, says since its creation at Bell Labs in the attic in 1969, the Unix operating system has spread far beyond anything its creators could have imagined. It has led to the development of a great deal of innovative software, influential myriad programmers, and changed the path of computer technology. This book is part history and part memoir. It tells the story of the origins of Unix, explains what Unix is, how it came about, and why it matters. Uh, it's accessible to non-specialists. The book is written uh, for anyone with an interest in computing or the history of inventions. And it was published with Kindle Direct uh, in October 2019 and is available on Amazon in paperbook and ebook format. Oh, okay. And I've seen it go on a couple of people's Christmas wish lists already. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, people have time to read over Christmas, I guess, a little bit. So why not? And then the last item in this list for this week is OpenBSD Moonlight Game Streaming Client from a Windows plus NVIDIA PC. Ooh. It says, I finally got around to playing with compiling the Qt Moonlight Game Streaming Client on OpenBSD. It's an open source client for NVIDIA's GameStream, which is a service that runs on a local remote Windows machine that has an NVIDIA GPU and the GeForce Experience software. I realize this isn't native OpenBSD gaming, so hopefully this is an acceptable topic for this separate. <laughs> but it's, it's nice to have this when you want to play games that can't be played on OpenBSD natively, though. Also can be handy when, you know, your desktop is over there and you want to play over here on your laptop. Mm -hmm. It was actually much easier than I anticipated to get to this point, but this point isn't 100% by any means. And it complains... Uh, that hardware accelerated video decoding isn't supported. I'd like to see if it can be configured or compiled to use the OpenBSD SNDIO as audio backend by default. And if not, uh, maybe configuring Pulse Audio to use a real output instead of a dummy output uh, that it finds by default. Uh, on the hardware accelerated decoding front, I'm not sure what to do or whether it's possible uh, with the i5-4300U HD graphics they have on the machine. Also, I haven't messed around with uh, controllers yet, and I've seen some discussion on that front in this subreddit, so I'll try to look at that at some point. But uh, they say they can stream Rocket League to their ThinkPad X240 from bigger laptop running Windows, which is an i7 with a GTX 1050, and it's over 60 frames a second. Oh, that's not bad for for Rocket League in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, and so basically install Qt5, FFmpeg, and SDL2, uh, and then currently they're cloning the GitHub repo, but by the look of it, that should be able to just be made into a port. Yeah, that's much easier to use then, and people can start joining your, your game. <laughs> Is this the year of the BSD gaming? Maybe. And there's thank yous to two users in the subreddit who helped uh, get the sound working. 
And it seems that hardware accelerated video decoding is not currently available on OpenBSD. Oh. Um, I think libva and so on are available on FreeBSD, so it'd be interesting to see if it's possible on FreeBSD. Yeah, that should be checked out and then report back. Okay, it's time for feedback and questions. Uh, this week, we have uh, always a want or a need for feedback, and you should send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv uh, to reach our show. This show is not just Alan and myself. There's also the people uh, invisible behind the scenes, but they're still there and they provide valuable work to us. And in this case, um, providing even an answer to this question. Well, yes. Uh, you know, in particular, uh, our editor worked on part of Lumina 1.5, so happen to know the answer. Exactly, yeah. But if you also want to know like how the show is produced or other things, uh, you can also send that to our <laughs> email address. Uh, Tim, so I uh, was asking about the Lumina 1.5 release notes and Tim's question was, Hi guys, just a quick question. Where can I find the release notes for Lumina Desktop 1.5? Short of creating a Redmine account on the iX Systems website or querying the GitHub site for commits between the previous release and this one. I tried various web searches but failed to locate any useful results. And so our own uh, JT... Uh, writes and as a response directly we don't we didn't do anything here uh, here's the github link to the release notes that's provided in the show notes uh, it's brief because 1.5 was mostly a culmination of patches and code cleanup no new major features were added in that release to the best of uh, his and Ken's memory okay so thanks for answering that so yeah they have uh, their release notes uh, posted on the actual release on github like uh, not so much the the part where you look at the source code, but where you can actually download the tarball. And there is actually a link to uh, the 32 changes that have happened uh, since then as well. Uh, thanks for that question. Uh, the next one is a bit of a trip report from VBSDCon uh, by uh, someone we know, and we met there again. From Brad, yep. Yep, uh, and uh, it was nice seeing him, and I kind of wanted him to write that trip report for the FreeBSD Journal, and he also submitted that to the show. And a future um, journal will have that trip report in a bit more nicer setup as they usually are. But the text will be mostly the same. So I read this here. Um, Brad writes, uh, this was my third B VBSDCon. I went to 2015 and 2017. Since I work in the Reston, uh, Virginia area, less than a mile from the venue and directly across from Dallas Toll Road from Verisign, for me, trip is a bit grandiose. Uh, I still consider myself a relative newbie with FreeBSD as I have only been using it for approximately five years. That's perfectly fine. Um, I have been a Unix and Linux system administrator for about 25 years and have touched most of the major Unixes over the years. I first delved into FreeBSD thanks to uh, uh, several things falling into place. First, I was a regular listener to BSD Now. Excellent. And because, as they become, as Chris used to say, BSD curious. Uh, at the same time, Linux began to implement SystemD. So I started looking at FreeBSD because it was about as far away from SystemD as I could get in an open source operating system. The final thing and the thing that got me completely hooked was ZFS and especially ZFS on boot and boot environments. Yep, you were not alone. So my first projects were relatively small. I initially built out a FreeNAS to replace my aging Linux file server that had no drive redundancy. Later, I purchased an HP T610 thin client and installed PFSense to replace my Linux firewall. 
So my first year, I was totally new to BSD and spent a lot of time talking with Chris Moore and Drew Levine at the iSystems and FreeBSD Foundation tables and learning in small increments. Not as perfect, you're fine. Take your time. I uh, joined the IRC channels for PCBSD True as FreeNAS at the time, and my impression of the FreeBSD was that it felt right down the middle with respect to the various Unixes I have worked with. Each commercial Unix seemed to have its own gimmick that made it feel unique. FreeBSD seemed to be one of the purest experiences I have had. His words. Oh, cool, yeah. Uh, each conference uh, that I have attended has taught me more and more, and I have consequently gone in with higher and higher confidence. Yes, that's what it's uh, supposed to do. Mm-hmm. The friendliness of the attendees and their willingness to suffer newbies was refreshing. Well, that's less suffering. Um, after many years in the Linux community, this year was no exception, and I had a chance to dip my foot further into the world of BSD. The major change for me in the past year is that due to the churn in the TrueOS world, I ended up switching my daily driver among computing platforms, primarily my desktop and laptop, to vanilla FreeBSD 12.0. This move allowed me to get more involved with the community this year, as during David Fullard's talk on transitioning from FreeNAS to FreeBSD, he mentioned that he wished that FreeBSD-Update would be ZFS-aware. I had written a script called FreeBSD Update that did just that. So no, FreeBSD Upgrade. Oh, Upgrade, right. Not the same name. Yeah, so that's the wrapping that around. So uh, I made that available to him, and we collaborated on the concept. Excellent. Colin Percival, who wrote FreeBSD Update, had some suggestions as well. By the end of the conference, David had a working prototype. Yeah, and uh, you and I were just looking at that uh, before the show. Yep, there's a review out there, and people have commented on that, so there's uh, progress. I also enjoyed Michael W. Lucas' talk on jails, which redoubled my intent to traditions all of my OpenVZ Linux containers to BSD jails, and Benedict Reuschling's my uh, talk on replacing Oracle with Postgres. Oh yeah, that was well received. Uh, and it's out now. Uh, last week's episode, we mentioned that the talks are out, for, or even a couple episodes before that, VBSDCon talks are on YouTube if you want to rewatch those. So back to the trip report. Uh, the first night, Benedict educated me on basic Ansible and the Hacker Lounge. Oh, yes, I remember that one. That was nice. And he showed me how to get a basic environment set up. I couldn't stay as late as I would have liked since I live 50 miles from the venue. Okay. Day two, some of the highlights were Alan Jude's explain to me like I'm a five-year-old talk on ZFS caching. Oh, yes. And Colin Percival's talk on side channel attacks as well as Connor Bay's talks on FreeBSD at work. That hit close to home, since FreeNAS and PFSense were how I got involved with FreeBSD. I also talked to Mark Felder about a bug in PCDM, in which services that started after it would not start. He helped me to fix it on my system and was looking into a more permanent fix. I stayed for some uh, of the social, but again, the 50-mile drive plus an early day on Sunday meant it could not spend as much time as I would have liked. All in all, I thoroughly enjoyed myself at the conference and felt that I came away with deeper and wider knowledge, as well as being more involved in the community. My goal is to be able to attend BSD Can next year. Excellent idea. Perfect uh, next venue to go to. Even though I have been unable to go to the past uh, uh, go to the past two years. Well, we look forward to seeing. Yep. And it's always nice to see these reports from people who uh, who enjoyed the conference and from their own viewpoints, what their um, you know their takeaways were from the conference and, uh, you know, the, the little projects that started here and there. Thanks for that trip report. And um, Jacob is the next and last one for this week uh, about using term info on FreeBSD. 
Okay, so Jacob writes, Hi, Alan and Benedict. I have a question I asked on the FreeBSD questions mailing list, but never got a response. Mm. I hope you can point me in the right direction. So other users have asked about how to use a non-XTerm terminal with FreeBSD. And the answer is usually to run info cmp capital C to convert the terminal's provided term info file to the term cap format and install those to their system. Most users are satisfied with the solutions as any error messages disappear and most terminal functionality is restored. However, anyone who has done this knows that some capabilities have no counterpart in term cap and that some capabilities will be left out to conform to the arcane 1023 byte limit. I run the Kitty terminal on my MacBook to SSH to my, SS, uh, to my FreeBSD server. Using the aforementioned procedure, I got the most basic terminal features like cup mode and bold text, but notably not colors due to the size limit, presumably. Uh, applications I expect to see color in are mainly LS from base and Vim from ports. Uh, I have thought about trying to handcraft a reasonable term cap for Kitty, but I could rather just use the term info file directly. What is stopping base and curses from supporting term info? Is there some configuration I can do to rebuild it with term info support? And this is a part of FreeBSD I have no knowledge about at all. I have also very limited. Uh, the only thing that I uh, know is how to disable the terminal echo in a shell script. So, if, for example, if you read a password from a user, you disable the output and then the the type password is not seen on the screen and then you activate it again but for terminal uh capabilities that's i know kitty from the mac i have it myself i, I it's still a little a bit of a beta uh in my view but it's a nice uh terminal but converting between terminal uh infos that's a bit more involved that i've not had the need to look into myself like I've never had to do anything like this to get colors to work. Does setting the environment variable term to xterm dash color not just give you color? Yeah, <laughs> that, that's the extent of what I know about it. Sorry. Yeah, I know that term infos can provide certain functionality that aren't there by default, but that's uh, too arcane knowledge for me. <laughs> it sounds like Jacob knows a lot more than me because I'm not familiar with what cup mode is and so on. Mm, yeah. Uh, but if someone is listening and knows exactly that answer, uh, they should also write to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll follow up in a future episode with that response and learn also something about uh, the term infos. And are probably like, oh, why did we miss that the whole time? We can do all kinds of crazy things in there. Yeah, so terminal people, terminal uh, capabilities are needed here. Okay, so that pretty much wraps up this episode. Thank you for listening. And hopefully you listen to us in future episodes. Mm -hmm.